This is Soccer City. The World Cup continues, and joining us today is a 60-year New York City resident, an American soccer journalist of British descent, Soccer America columnist Paul Gardner, who's always got a strong opinion, no exception today. The Hudson River Derby featured two first-timers in the technical area on Sunday, and New York City FC coach Dome Turan, he got the result against New York native Chris Armas, who was hoping for a more successful debut as the New York Red Bulls head coach. The New York City Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment and NYCFC announced a a groundbreaking partnership in March to broadcast NYCFC games right here on city-owned radio station WNYE and also collaborate with the NYU School of Professional Studies, where we are providing broadcast training for a group of NYC high school students. For the next month, those students will own the Soccer on the Block segment here on Soccer City, starting now. This is Taylor Heimitt. And this is Eddie Conan. And we are here at Mary Athletic Field on Cherry Street in Lower Manhattan. Where we will be interviewing several residents about their experience playing pickup. So, can you tell me your name and nationality? My name is Brian Kritsky, and I'm from New York City. My name is Daniel Munoz, and I'm from Colombia and Spain. My name is Edwin Lopez, and my nationality is um, Mexican-American. My Gotti, American citizen, yet Romanian-born. And how long have you been playing soccer at this field? At this field, it's probably been about six to seven years. I've been officiating on this field for about seven years. And this field, I've been playing since I was little. Do you play in any league around here? Yes. This league here is called Bowery Premier League, and it's one of the best leagues in the city. It has a lot of former MLS players, Division One players, and it also has two leagues, so there's, there's relegation and promotion. This is an amateur league, yet it's the most competitive 7-on-7 league in New York City. Are there any conflicts or problems while playing? Sometimes. It gets, it gets pretty heated. I play it on an Italian team, and whenever we play the French or the Germans, it gets pretty, it gets pretty intense. But after the game, it usually, you know, we all, we're all friends. The regular problems, like fight is in the game and all the stuff, but nothing else. Nothing else. Not much. Most players are uh, very disciplined, high-quality players for the most part. Do you think pickup soccer is replacing pickup basketball? Yeah, for sure. I, I think pickup soccer is, and soccer in general is replacing football, American football, basketball, baseball. Soccer is, soccer is such a great sport because you, all you really need is a ball to play. You don't need any other equipment. You don't even need a proper field. Yeah, I think it is replacing pickup basketball because soccer is just is a world sport, you know. Everybody loves the sport, you know. You don't need that much. You just need a ball, and that's it. For Soccer on the Block, this is Tayer Hyman. And this is Eddie Conan. All right, you have to be able to get at least 25, everyone. So that means that you've got to move. Three, two, one, go. I'm Faris Hymid, and today I'm visiting the Saturday Night Lights program, and I'm talking to Brandy Daniels, who is the youth coordinator at Saturday Night Lights in East Harlem. Hi, Brandy. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Good, good. Full disclosure, Brandy has been my soccer coach for more than a year now, so we know each other very well. So I wanted to ask you about SNL. What, what is this program exactly? So SNL is a crime prevention program, and it's about keeping kids off the streets at the high crime hours from 5 to 9 o'clock. And we play soccer here, and we also build life skills and traits, and we have tutoring. 
and we enrich the children's lives through the beautiful game. And do you feel like everyone is respectful in this program? For sure. I definitely think they are respectful. They respect each other, and they respect the coaches, and they also respect the environment that they're in. Do you see the kids growing on and off the field? They're growing with their soccer skills and their life skills as well. Soccer-wise, some of the kids come in and they've never kicked a ball, and now they're not only kicking the ball, but they're learning moves and they're learning the game. And then life skill-wise, some of the kids, to begin with, they never would look you in the eye, and now they're going up to people and shaking their hands and introducing themselves. So it's definitely tenfold both ways. Uh, who is Ferris? You're talking to me right now. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to say about Ferris? Oh, he's just really annoying every single weekend. <laughs> Next, I talked to Matthew Garakocha, who is a player at SNL. So, how do you feel playing at SNL every night? Uh, it's a great honor to play with a bunch of great students that know how to play. Uh, I, I heard that your brother is a coach. Is that true? Uh, yeah, that is. Uh, he became a coach when he was, uh, I believe, uh, 19 or 20. And I started playing soccer here in SNL when I was 7 years old, and now I'm 11. So, do you, do you want to follow your brother's footsteps? Maybe, as my mom or father told me. I can I can follow the footsteps, or I can be more. I can become a lawyer, a doctor, or a soccer coach, as he is. For Soccer on the Block, this is Ferris Hyman. Good morning, guys. We're here at Thomas Jefferson Park, and we're going to interview people who play for um, New York City FOSA. It's me, Michael, and, and Suri. So we are currently here with Jose Fernando, Michelle, and Juan. I just want to know, like, what got you involved in this league? What got me involved in this league was ever since I got into SNL. SNL stands for Saturday Night Lights, which is a nonprofit organization that prevents kids from violence and drug abuse. Coach Junior looked, um, was interested in me playing for city soccer. And yeah, he saw that I was always like with good attendance. Um, I always like to play, and I was also with playing around with everybody. I have friends who play in the team, and they invited me to play with them. They looked for me, and they asked if I could play with them, and I was like, yeah, sure, so I started playing with them. So do you find this league competitive or simply just for fun? It's competitive, like, at the start, but as um, as you keep in, like playing and improving, it like you can find simple ways of um, playing the game. So being the only girl on the team, do you feel like this is something tough to do? Yeah, it's tough because um, when I get past the ball, I started, I tend to mess up, but it, it feels great playing with them. What do you think about this league oh. you're in right now? I think it's nice. Um, it's competitive type. It's nice. It, it brings unity and stuff. Right, who do you think is the best player in your team? In my team, I don't. I don't want to sound cocky, but I think it's me because I, I put a lot of work. Like, you know, I do what I have to do, and I hope my team do what they have to do when they don't want to do it. That's good. Uh, thank you. No problem. Yeah, no problem. Thank you too. For Saga in the blog, this is Michael Marino and Sulay Terrazas. Are you guys ready? Yes. Go. This is Maria with the NYU High School Academy, currently at SNL. Hello, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Emily Campos. I am one of the head coaches at the Saturday Night Light program. Can you please tell us uh, what is SNL to you? 
Well, as Saturday Night Lights is a community of girls where everyone feels like family. It's a huge soccer program and it's it's the only girl program of its kind in in the East Harlem community. And we have girls ranging from five-year-olds to 18-year-olds just wanting to play soccer. And it's just beautiful to see how the girls are having a space to play and just enjoy themselves without having the boys interrupt them and take the ball away from them. So how did you join SNL? One of the boys from the boys program, his brother is the head coach, and his name is Junior, and he asked him, like, hey, we're looking for girls to join a program. Would you like to come? And I was like, yeah, sure. He tricked me, though. He told me there was a bunch of girls. There was a bunch of girls in the younger session, not the older session. So when I walked into Saturday Night Lights for the very first time, I was, like, super uh, intimidated. Five, four, three, two... One and freeze. Okay, who got more than 25? Hi, can you introduce yourself, please? Um, my name is Jennifer Guzman. I'm 19 years old. I'm about to start my second year in college. What made you keep coming back every week? Everyone in the program, from the coaches to the girls that are in here, like makes you feel like a family. I've learned to open up. Like In the beginning, I was also really shy, but now I'm able to talk to others, um, make others, like new girls, feel welcome and... We always greet each other, talk about our days, like almost as if we'd known each other for years. This is Kimberly with the NYU High School Academy, currently at SNL. Can you please introduce yourself? My name is Karen Cardenas, and I'm a coming freshman to Utica College 2022. So Karen, how would you describe the transition from playing at SNL to coaching at SNL? My coaches, like Coach Lily and Coach Yannick, they made the transition pretty easy. I was making mistakes, and I feel like I had a lot of pressure, but they told me to be comfortable in my own shoes, and they helped me. They gave me tips, and they helped me a lot to just feel comfortable and be myself. How do you think SNL is different from other programs? One, the diversity. Two, because you won't get that help anywhere else. Like, I never seen, like, a soccer program that, like, has so many, like, open doors and opportunities. It's really crazy how, like... They have so many connections, they can like connect it to anybody and you would think it's only about soccer but it's more than that. Like you can have problems in your life and you just can go to any coach and talk to them about it and they accept you for who you are. For the NYU High School Academy, this has been Kimberly and Maria. Thank you. Thank you, ladies, and thanks to all our students whose next project is covering the New York City FC match against Montreal on Wednesday. At Yankee Stadium on Sunday night, New York City prevailed in the Hudson River Derby with a 1-0 victory over the New York Red Bulls. In the absence of the injured David Villa, Maxi Morales scoring his seventh goal of the season. That's two more than a year ago. It was the game winner in the 85th minute. Adding to the intrigue of the rivalry match was something quite unique. Two MLS head coaches leaving their teams in midseason and both in the New York market. A month ago, it was Patrick Vieira for City, and just days before the Derby match, the Red Bulls announced that Jesse Marsh, he was departing to pursue other opportunities. So, longtime Pep Guardiola assistant Dolme Toron, he steps in for New York City, and New York native Chris Armas for the Red Bulls. Before the game, Toron, who has now coached three New York City matches, shared a secret about his preparation for the Red Bulls and their vaunted press. I training uh, 30 minutes every day about that because it's not easy to play against the Bulls because they make high pressing. Toron, he had watched several Red Bull matches before the derby 
and he saw similarities to a couple of other Red Bull properties, RB Leipzig of the Bundesliga and Austrian side RB Salzburg teams he had met while at Bayern Munich and Manchester City. They play in the, in the same way, 90%. They make high pressing. They, uh, they have uh, high uh, intensity in every single ball. It's the same uh, that happened in, in Leipzig and Salzburg. And it's very, very similar. It's not news for, for me because uh, I played especially against uh, the friendly game, but uh, against uh, Salzburg. And when I watched the, the last three, four games, I say, wow, it's very similar. The, it's the... Is the for me is the Red Bulls uh, ways and ironic that a day after this interview with Tehran, Marsh was on his way to Leipzig as an assistant coach. So Marsh's four-year assistant Armas takes charge. Uh, Chris Armas, born in the Bronx, a mainstay for seven years on the U.S. men's national team. He was a schoolboy legend at St. Anthony's High School on Long Island, a first-team All-American at Adelphi on the island, and a member of the Long Island Rough Riders. That was pre-Major League Soccer. In MLS, he played over 260 matches with both the L.A. Galaxy and Chicago Fire, and now placed in the fire of this New York Derby for his first head coaching assignment. I, I was very comfortable today um i was comfortable in the role uh, and i think uh, the comfort comes um from the group of guys that that i'm coaching uh not just that i know them that there's a respect there i've known these guys and it's just a certain comfort level that that uh felt okay with that i think knowing that we're a good team gives a, a coach comfort that you step out in the field you think you can, you can beat anyone on any given day so in the in the role of head coach on the day yeah it's it's a bit different and and but I've been in this building before. I've been on that sideline before, making decisions before. It largely felt comfortable. Just without the result for Armas, uh, his only previous head coaching experience, four years at his alma mater coaching the women at Adelphi. So it's Dome Tehran winning in his first derby match. And with the victory, New York City moves back ahead of the Red Bulls and into second place in the Eastern Conference. Well, some familiar names here to NYCFC supporters. Justin Hack scoring off a James Sands corner kick and the New York City Academy U18-19s advance to the final of the U.S. Soccer Development Academy Championships with a one to nothing triumph over Crew SC Academy. New York City will meet the L.A. Galaxy for t- the title tonight. Gio Reyna and Joe Scali, they were named to the Eastern Conference Top 11. Reyna selected as the Player of the Year. Now, maybe a less familiar name to supporters is the Academy coach Matt Pilkington, the Eastern Conference Coach of the Year. He's got 15 years of coaching experience at various levels, and he shared his philosophy with me prior to the playoffs. Yeah, I have a lot of experiences, some good, some bad, uh, from playing and from coaching. And I've kind of taken those and tried to hone my own uh, philosophy. And, you know, as the game has evolved massively over, over the years, I think trying to develop creative players, I think, is, is, is paramount to the success of soccer, you know, because people want to watch entertainers. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate to have, you know, Messi and Ronaldo that, that young players can look up to, but, you know, they're going to be not going to be around forever. So we have to find ways to, to bring in players that, can hopefully emulate similar similar levels and can inspire young kids to to want to play and to want to train and to want to work and and so as a as a coach 
the goal is to try and create the players that can can do that at the next level and can excite fans and uh, can continue to inspire people to want to play the game and watch the game. Matt Pilkington, the former technical director for the Downtown United Soccer Club, Dusk, now hoping to guide his NYCFC Academy team to a national championship tonight. And there will be a viewing party at 8.30 p.m. at Rockefeller Plaza. He is English-born, but an American soccer journalist, perhaps uh, best known for his hundreds, maybe it's thousands of columns for what I consider the soccer Bible in the States, Soccer America. His books include The Simplest Game, Nice Guys Finish Last, and Soccer Talk, Life Under the Spell of the Round Ball. And years ago, he was a color commentator. Those of you old enough like me to remember, the uh, first World Cup final broadcast in the U.S., 1982, Paolo Rossi's Golden Boot uh, performance in Italy, defeating West Germany 3-1 to at the Bernabeu in Madrid. And he also called a bunch of matches in Mexico at the 1986 World Cup. Argentina won that one. Diego Maradona with the hand of God against... The England team in the quarterfinals, your England team. Paul Gardner, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for all that build-up, I must say. I only object to the end of it, my England team. No, 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 no. Okay. I've lived in New York for nearly 60 years now, so I'm an American. If you can't tell, recognize my Brooklyn accent by now. <laughs> I'm not doing a good enough job on it. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Paul, is because you've been in the city for so long. And the, the thing that strikes me when I look back to see uh, when you commented on games, 1982, the first time a final had been broadcast in the States, and you see where we are now, where every game is seen. It's repeated later in the night. So uh, that's not that many years where that transformation has taken place, and you've been a part of it. You've, you've witnessed it. Well, it's been a lot quicker than I guess a lot of us thought, or at least the years seem to have gone more quickly. Um, there's a difference. When you look at them you know, mathematically, you can add them up and say, okay, well, that's 20 years. But there are 20-year gaps which seem like 40 years to you, you know, and another 20-year gap which seems to go by without it, without you even noticing it. I, it it's passed quickly at the time, much more quickly than somehow or other, you know, I'd ever thought it would. Incidentally, on, on the broadcasting of the 1982 final, the 66 final was broadcast here, but on a tape delay basis. So the ah. 82 final was actually the first live broadcast. Um of a World Cup final. Maybe yep. we didn't get a better one, but uh, you can't pick and choose in soccer, can you? But now, were you on that game uh, in 86 when uh, Maradona beat not your England, but England in, in the quarters? Yes, I was. So what was your take on it? How did you describe well, it? Well, reminded me of that very recently. So I'm obviously a very old person, otherwise he wouldn't have been alive to watch it. Um, and said that... It, he didn't know me at the time. He's come to know me since. He said, but, he said, but I always remember what you said. And I said, well, then remind me, because I don't. And he said, well, all you said was, well, there's no need to say anything when you're confronted by some some word genius of that sort. So I didn't say very much, uh, but deliberately, evidently, I was let it play and speak for itself, which I think it did. Well, I think that that takes us to the present and video assistant referee and review and, you know, the I know it's been brought up before, but the the people suggesting, well, would have VAR existed uh, during uh, Diego Maradona's 
trip to the World Cup final and winning the title uh, with Argentina, uh, that would have changed a lot of things, I think, wouldn't it? Well, presumably it would have disallowed uh, Maradona's first goal, on the hand of God goal. Um, and who knows, at that point, you know, if Argentina don't go ahead with that goal, I, I, I think Argentina, frankly, had enough resources and the attacking sense to win, to score goals against any team they played, and they did do that. And Maradona was at the heart of everything. So I don't think it would have changed anything there, but it would have left people feeling a bit happier about um, about the way that we uh, we were getting things right there, you know, which so often in the past, before VAR, we've come up with some awful bloopers, and VAR is designed to avoid those. On the whole, in this tournament... I think it's done pretty well. I, th- I think, um, you know, I would give it a favorable review, or at least I would have done until we got into the second round and the shootouts became uh, evident. And I think uh, between you and me and everybody else, I think the um, VAR people have done a crap job on the shootouts because they're not paying attention to them, and I do not understand why that is. Well, Bri, be a little more specific. You're referring to goalkeeper movement? Yes. Uh, goalkeeper movement is a big problem because you're asking at the moment, let's forget VAR, but at the moment with just one guy watching for it, and, and namely the assistant referee standing on the goal line, you're asking him to look at the goalkeeper and also at the same instant, and it is an instant, remember, is it a fraction of a second? At the same instant, you're asking him to be aware of that instant that the kicker kicks the ball. Well, that's impossible. It just can't happen. The human eye is not capable of doing that, and the human brain can't register it either. So, uh, you know, a compromise has been breached that they allow the goalkeeper one step forward, simply because you can't tell when that step is taken. Well, now we can tell, because we've got VAR. You refer it to them, or they you don't have to. They will pronounce on it quickly. Goalkeeper moved, or he didn't. Well, let's be specific. It's the goalkeeper moving forward that we're looking for. He can move side to side well, he can dance uh, along the line. He can run up to and throw to each goalpost if he wants to, as long as he does it along the line. You know. So you and he uh, can wave his arms about frantically too. Some of them try that. So you've you've looked at it closely. So you there were numerous instances. Any that really stand out to you? Well, the one instance was not a shootout. Uh, the one instance was a regular regular penalty kick, but Croatia got very, very late in the game, in, in the nearly end of overtime, in fact, against, um, who were they playing? Denmark, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, and Schmeichel saved it. But his movement before the kick was taken seemed to me to be so obvious that I couldn't understand how the, the assistant referee on the line, how he didn't wave his flag. All right, Paul Gardner, Soccer America, our guest. Uh, Paul, uh, you, you've seen a lot of World Cups. I don't know how many, but y- you're. Uh, I'm curious as to how you compare this to the others because you hear so many people, and they might have been not around uh, as long as you. I hope that's more of a showing my reverence rather than, <laughs> than anything else. Yeah, that's a diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of people are calling this like the best World Cup. You so, see so many small countries having success. Uh, a lot of the uh, the big boys, Germany, you know, Brazil, uh, are, are eliminated. They're done. Portugal, Spain. Uh, so what, what's your take on it? And uh, if it's not your favorite World Cup, why? But if it is, tell us why as well. Um, I've attended 10, uh, 10 World Cups. I covered nine. One of them I, I attended as a um, uh, 
As a spectator, I got tickets and went to some of the games. That was 1966. The first one I covered was 78, and then after that I'd, I'd been to all of them except this one and South Africa. I think that adds, I can't do mathematics in my head. I think that adds up to 10, includes 1986. Now, the changes are very evident, and this one is proving to be um, something different because uh, we've got um, a final four that includes only second-tier teams who've won it, France and England. You can't really class them amongst the major powers like, like Italy, Brazil, Germany, who've won it, uh, you know, new, numerous times or multiple times. The serial winners. Uh, yeah. I don't think the standard of, uh, of soccer in this tournament has been particularly good. Um, now... Whose fault is that? Well, it's not the fault of the teams that are left, those four teams. It's the fault of the teams who should have been supplying the good soccer. Um, Brazil, Argentina, Germany. I mean, they all deserve to go. They didn't, they didn't do enough to, to look good and, and to justify their either their reputations or their particular being favorites in this tournament. I mean, they just didn't. Spain, I thought, were unfortunate running into Russia, who didn't want to play when when they came to meet Spain, and um, uh, and so you got Spain out on a, a really awful game, which the Russians made awful by the way they play it. And uh, again, that's something that could be the, the people who run the sport, FIFA, IFAB, the the rules board. They could put a stop to that. They could stop teams playing so defensively if they want to. Uh, apparently they don't seem to want to. They seem to be happy for a team to uh, get through by playing defensive soccer. Well, uh, what's your what's your rule change that would help that out? Well, I think what you, when you're playing defensive soccer and you've got everybody back, you're basically uh, relying on the shootout. You're relying on two things, actually. Getting a um, either a lucky goal or a fluke goal, or maybe even quite a good goal, but you're not going to be doing much attacking. And once you've got a goal, if you do get a goal, you're probably not going to be doing any attacking. Um, so in other words, you've got to find a way to make teams, to get them out of their own half, to get them down the other end of the field, um, where the game is open, it becomes opened up. And you can do that by saying, we will have a... Uh, tiebreaker, forget the shootout, we will have a tiebreaker that will measure how much a team is on the attack. Now, there are quite a few ways of doing that. Uh, statistically, you could, um, and I think all the things I'm going to talk about now briefly would have to be up on the scoreboard. The fans have to know where they are with this, otherwise you're taking a good deal of uh, suspense and excitement out of the game. My answer has always been corner kicks. You cannot get corner kicks if you play defensively, which means that if people know corner kicks are going to be counted, at half time you find that you're 5 nothing down on corner kicks. You've lost the game. You have to get down the other end of the field to get some corner kicks, or preferably a goal. And that opens up the game. That destroys uh, this nonsense of pulling everybody back and playing basically 10, 11 men, if you like, in defense. Are, are so you saying that, Paul, are you saying... Or count shots on goal, or counts the number of times you hit the woodwork, or presence in the opposing penalty area. There are various ways of... Those, those things I'm mentioning 
are a different type of tiebreaker. The shootout tiebreaker and almost all the others I've heard are gimmicks that are added on at the end of the game. In other words, the game's over. Now we'll turn to the tiebreaker, which has nothing to do with what's just gone on for 120 minutes. Whereas if you count the various things I'm talking about, those tiebreakers are completely different in the sense that they start with the opening whistle of the real game. They're part of the real game. And that's what makes them much more valid in terms of assessing which team, if you like, deserves or merits a win. That's Paul Gardner of Soccer America. And a very happy ending as of Tuesday morning. All 12 boys and their coach from the youth soccer team that was trapped in that flooded Thai cave for nearly three weeks, they have now been rescued. That'll do it for Soccer City. New York City hosts Montreal on Wednesday and Columbus on Saturday. We'll be carrying both games here on WNYE. Airtime for both, 6.45 p.m. I'm Glenn Crooks. Have a great day and enjoy the World Cup.